This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. I wanted to do something a little bit uh, different in this chapel hour, in part uh, because of uh, an anniversary that uh, we just passed a couple of days ago on Tuesday. It was the 46th anniversary of the decision of Roe v. Wade, a decision by the Supreme Court that legalized uh, elective abortion in the United States. And so I wanted to, to take a little bit of time this morning to, to think about uh, why as Christians, I think we should be pro-life, uh, to consider that from Scripture and hopefully to, to give uh, some thoughts and examples of w- as well of how you could uh, talk to people about this issue and to, to think about the role that you as a church leader might play in this. And one of the reasons I want to do so is because in the 46 years since Roe v. Wade uh, declared abortion legal, over 60 million children have been murdered. May even potentially be more than that. That is uh, a number that's largely based on the information from the Guttmacher Institute, which is a pro-choice uh, institute. They think they're probably relatively accurate, but I, I'm inclined to think it could even be higher than that. And so I want to begin this morning by thinking about what the Bible has to say about this issue, then moving to, to saying, so as we talk to people, what what kinds of arguments can and should we use, and then closing with some, some thoughts about what uh, you can and should specifically do. First, what does the Bible have to say? And I think when we're talking about this issue, what we need to begin with is the, the foundational truth of the value of human life. We're going to say, why are we pro-life? It's in part because we're saying life is valuable. And from Scripture, I would imagine you understand that the, the reason human life is valuable is because of what's true about humans. In Genesis 1, we find the creation account, and in it, we have uh, kind of a break from the pattern that's been going on. As God's been speaking and things have been made, God's been speaking and things have been made, and then all of a sudden there's a bit of a break, and, and here God pauses and says, well, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And so we see uh, right from the get-go that humanity is distinct from every other aspect of God's creation because it's only man who's made in the image of God, and it's not just biological males, but it's male and female. It's all of humanity who is made in the image of God. And that image has, was marred after a sin, but it wasn't lost. In part, we see that in Genesis 9 when, when God first uh, institutes human government. He lays out the principle of capital punishment as the, the means of human government to be able to utilize the sword in enacting justice. And he does so on the basis of this truth. Whoever sheds the blood of man, a man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so when you are attacking human life, in some way that's a reflection of you, your view of God and your understanding of God, which is a truth that comes up again in the New Testament in James. 
As James talks about the tongue, he says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And the point there is to say those can't really both be happening at the same time. Because people are a reflection of the image of God, the way you treat them reflects your view of God. And so humanity we see in Scripture is valuable. And humans are valuable not because of the functional value they provide in this world, as much as there's an inherent value, but even that doesn't derive from themselves. It's, it's derived from their relationship to God. That people are valuable because they're made in God's image, the one who is supremely valuable. And this is true of all people. That it's people aren't uh, don't have rights. People don't have value because of their ability to think or reason, uh, because of anything beyond the fact that they are simply human. And that's what scripture consistently teaches. The next question that often comes up, though, then, is so when does human life begin? If humans are valuable, when is someone a human? And of course, we could look to science, but I think before science, we could even look to scripture and say, what does scripture have to say about this? And I think that scripture is very consistent in teaching that life begins at conception. Psalm 51, verse 5. David, in talking uh, and confessing his sin against Bathsheba, says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, sin is not something that uh, we attribute to anything other than humans. We don't talk about animals sinning. We don't talk about trees sinning. We only talk about people sinning. And here, David isn't saying, My mother was sinful when she conceived me. He's saying, I was sinful from the moment of conception. And so the clear implication would be, from the moment of conception, David was a human person. You see a similar idea in Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. And here he's not saying, when the thing that eventually became me, he's saying, I was there. I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed to me, when as yet there was none of them. And so God knew David before he was born. And David refers to himself existing in that state before he was born. Remember the first time I, I had to wrestle with this, I was talking with a friend of mine who was uh, capitulating uh, about the, the pro-life position. And one of his points was saying, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really ever tell us when human life begins. And so I began thinking through, well, what might the Bible have to say about it? And one of the first passages that I eventually landed on was in Luke 1. Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. When she heard it, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, we know that Elizabeth is about six months pregnant at this point in time. And she doesn't say a group of, a blob of cells. She doesn't say this thing that might eventually become a baby. She says, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. So I looked at that passage, I thought, well, we at least have to say at six months life has begun, because it's a baby. 
But as I looked at this passage later, I realized actually there's another life involved here too, right? Jesus. Because we're talking about the fruit of her womb. She is the mother of my Lord. And Mary is at best a few weeks pregnant at this point in time. And so this matches up again with the consistent teaching of Scripture that from the moment of conception, we have a human life. I want to briefly deal with one passage that, that some people have used to try to argue that the Bible might say it's a human life, but it's a lesser human life until it's born. And that's from Exodus 21. Exodus 21, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determined. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now some have said the scenario is this. You have a pregnant woman that's hit, and she has a miscarriage, but she's okay. There's no harm to her. Then you pay a fine. But if there's harm to her, then you pay life for life. And so the implication would be that the unborn child's life is of lesser value than her life. But the problem is this phrase here, so that her children come out, I think is, is pointing to, to the idea of the child coming out. The no harm, though, I don't think you can ever say it only applies to the mother. It would certainly have to apply to the whole scenario here. That you can't say it's a miscarriage, but she's okay. The language seems to clearly indicate on some level her children comes out. It's, it's probably a premature birth. And so then the question is, well, is everything okay, though? Is the mother okay? Is the child okay? And if so, you're still in trouble. There's still a fine you have to pay because of the potential danger you cause. But let's say there is something that happened. There is a life that was lost or damaged. In that case, the same stipulation has to apply. And notice here, a lot of the things that are mentioned wouldn't actually apply specifically to this scenario. It's unlikely that you're going to have a burn from this. It's laying all this out to basically say, this is the same principle that's applying all the time. This is the principle that we are governing. That, that whatever the, the punishment is matches with the crime. And so this passage actually would say that I think both the, the child and the mother are equally humans who deserve the same kind of justice that's being determined here. The scripture is very consistent in saying human life is valuable. And so as we talk to others, how should we talk with them? As we're making the case for our position, as we're arguing for the pro-life position, what should we do? And I want to first just uh, briefly look at a, a passage, we'll come back to this later, from Ephesians 5, that I think would encourage us to be engaged in discussions like this. And Ephesians 5.11 is in the midst of the passage in which uh, Paul is telling the Ephesians to walk in love. And here he's, he's actually encouraging them to, to, to walk as children of God, to walk in the light. And in part of that, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And this word for expose is, is really used in Scripture to, to kind of have one of two things, either to convict, expose or convict, or to rebuke and reprove. 
And I think in both situations, you, you would have some kind of verbal aspect to it. I, I certainly think part of the emphasis here is to, to recognize by your life, you are exposing their sinful works or unfruitful works of darkness by your fruitful works in the life in the light, but I think it would also include verbally talking about these things. And I think it's worth noting, he's here not saying unfruitful people, he's actually talking about their works. And on some level, it's, it's a good thing for Christians to take sinful, secretive, shameful things and expose them for what they are. And I think that's really what we're doing with abortion. We're exposing it what it really is. Helping people to realize it's not what you claim. It's something far, far worse. So how do we do that? I first want to suggest to you the Apple argument. And the Apple argument is named the Apple argument because of the way it was is first popularized. This was made by Peter Kreef. And, and the reason it's called the Apple argument is because he says, do we know what an Apple is? And almost everyone's going to say, yeah, we know what an Apple is. And we really know what an apple really is. Like, there's not a lot of doubt about this. And his point there is to say, well, then we also really know what a human is. Because we know humans better than we know apples. And so certainly we should know what a human is even more than we would know what an apple is. But let's say someone says, but no, 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 we don't really know what a human is. And they're not skeptical in the sense of saying we can't know anything. Because at that point in time, do I even have the conversation? But they're saying... We just, we have some idea, but that's, you know, it's fuzzy. We don't really know what a human is. And so in that scenario, he says, really, there's only four cases. The fetus is a person, and we know that. The fetus is a person, and we don't know that. The fetus isn't a person, and we don't know that. And the fetus isn't a person, and we know that. And really, that's because we neither know it or we don't know it, or it is or it isn't. And that's really the only options out there. So let's walk through these scenarios. So first, the fetus is a person and we know that. Is abortion okay? And the answer clearly should be no. Because it's never right to take a human life in, in this kind of a scenario, a human life that did nothing to deserve any kind of capital punishment. What about this? The fetus is a person, but we don't know that. And I think this is one of the, the most common arguments you'll see out there. That Well, we just don't know when human life begins. It's, a, it's an answer that's above my pay grade. It's the kind of thing that's kind of fuzzy. We don't know when it begins. And so in this scenario, the fetus is a person. We don't know that. And, and a couple of illustrations are often used to, to help us to think about this. Let's say you're driving along uh, with a, a friend who's sitting next to you, and you see a, a pile of something in the road that kind of looks like a human body. And you say, is that, is that a person? Is that a human? I don't, I don't know, it could be. Let's run over it. Now, at that point in time, would you say, yeah, that's a great idea? Or would you say, don't do that? Let's say you run over it and you find out that was a person. Are you okay? Or, or let's say you're, it's your job to demolish a building. And you're getting ready to, to set off the explosives. And someone says, did you check to make sure everyone's out? Did you check to see if anyone's in there? You say, no, I don't know. I don't know if anyone's in there. You set it off. And you find out someone was in there. As you stand before the judge, do you think it's okay for you to say, well, I didn't know someone was in there. I, I didn't know that was a person in the road. 
What is everyone going to say? doesn't matter. If you thought it could have been, you should have checked. And so in this scenario, abortion's not okay. What about this scenario? It's the same situation. You, you, you run over the pile, and it's not a person. And do we think, actually, this is a fine practice for us to do? <laughs> We'd say, no, that's still a bad idea. You got lucky. That wasn't a person. It's not a good idea, though. Or you blew up the building, and no one was in there. But someone knows you didn't check. You are still criminally negligent. And so if we don't know if it's a person, it's not okay. In all three of these scenarios, abortion is not okay. What about this scenario? The fetus isn't a person, and, and we know that. Well, at that point in time, we could potentially say, yeah, because we're not taking a human life. But you realize in this scenario, you know what we have to say? We know what a human is, which is the whole point of the debate right now. So if you say, we don't know when human life begins, we should not have abortion. If you say, we do know when human life begins, it begins once the fetus is viable, or it begins when someone wants the child, or it begins after birth. That's then when you move to the next set of arguments. And this is the argument that's often uh, called the sled argument. Have any of you seen this one before, a couple of you? So in the sled argument, I think it was really popularized by, by Scott Klusendorf. It walks through four different kinds of arguments people will try to use to say an unborn child is not a person and, and pushes back to show why they don't work. So the first is size. It's, it's just a, you know, it's this little tiny speck in the womb. I mean, it's just a few inches. It's no bigger than a raisin. And so how could you possibly say that's a person? And so at that point in time, what we're saying is how big you are somehow determines your value as a person. And so that means that my son Reese is less valuable than my son Ethan because Ethan's bigger than Reese. And I'm more valuable than Ethan. In fact, I'm more valuable than most of you. Which maybe this isn't a bad idea for us to go on, <laughs> right? You say, well, no, we, we don't think someone's more of a person because they're big. And in fact, this is one of those things that's great from Horton Hears a Who. A person's a person, no matter how small. But that's that's a, a vital truth for us to keep in mind. Our, our size doesn't determine our personhood. And so the fact that you're a minuscule or the fact that you're six feet tall is irrelevant. We don't think about persons in light of size. Second, level of development. That baby doesn't even have lungs yet. Baby can't feel, the baby can't reason. And we're saying on some level that, that it's not a child yet until it gets something like that. Well, a, a newborn really isn't very aware of its surroundings. It can't see very well. There's still a whole lot of development that has to go on in those first few weeks. And so is that less of a person than a two-year-old? Or an eight-year-old boy can't grow facial hair. He hasn't developed that ability yet. So he's less valuable as a person than uh, a male adult because the male adult's more developed. We say, well, no, that we don't think that. Well, then we don't think that level of development actually determines whether or not we're a person. Because if we're saying that, then at some point we've got to decide this is the cutoff. 
This is when we've developed enough to be human. What about the second, uh, the third, environment? An environment, this is where you're, you're saying it's, it's inside the womb still. It's not born yet. And really what, when we're saying it's not born, we're simply saying it's inside the womb and it's not outside the womb. That's really the only difference, right? Because what's being born? It's traveling. It's traveling a few inches through the birth canal. And she's saying, well, no, until that happens, it's not really a person. So does our personhood adjust because we're inside this building versus outside this building? Does our personhood adjust because we're here in Michigan in winter as opposed to in Florida? Maybe, <laughs> right? But probably not. That our environment doesn't really determine our personhood. And so changing our location doesn't make someone a person or not a person. The final, our degree of dependency. That, and this is often connected to the idea of viability. That, that the unborn child couldn't live without the mother. It's dependent on the life of the mother. And so until it's independent, the life of the mother has to take precedence. My wife, as many of you know, is expecting uh, within just uh, about a month away. So let's say we have the baby, and a couple weeks later we're like, man, we need a vacation. And so her and I go together, just the two of us, and we go down to Florida here in, wi in, in you know, try to, to get kind of get away. And you say, well, what would you do with your kids? And I said, they're at home. Who's watching them? No one. We come back, what do you think is going to happen? Certainly to our infant, very likely to our other kids. Something horrible. Would we be responsible? 100% we'd be responsible. What if we said, it's not our fault the infant depends on us? You say, well, that's exactly the point. It depends on you. So you don't have the right not to give it what it needs. The fact the child depends on you is irrelevant to whether or not it's a person. And really, if we, if we tease this out, someone who is on a kidney dialysis machine, well, hey, they're not really a person because they couldn't live without that. We don't, we don't think that whether or not you depend on someone really makes a difference. And, and, and honestly, I, I, I mentioned Scott Klusendorf. I've heard him make a, a good argument related to the idea of viability. And what he, he really says is, and we're talking about viability, and viability is could the, the infant survive outside of the mother's womb? We're primarily talking about our technological capabilities because viability has been moving earlier and earlier in pregnancies as we have gotten better and better at dealing with uh, premature infants. And so right now in Detroit, a 28-week 20 uh, infant could be viable. It's born, it could survive. So let's say you have a woman here in Detroit, 28 weeks pregnant. What's inside of her is a person because it's viable. She flies over to Bangladesh. In Bangladesh, you're looking at probably about 35 or 36 weeks until an infant would really be able to live outside of the womb on the basis of their medical abilities. And so she gets on a plane in Detroit and there's two people. She lands in Bangladesh and there's only one. And then she comes back to Detroit and now there's a person again. We say, well, that's ridiculous. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Because we don't think our degree of dependency really determines our personhood. 
and we don't really want any of these things applying. At the moment we begin to say some persons have rights and other persons don't have rights, we go down a path that never ends well. Because if, if we say our rights are not inalienable, our rights are not something that we have simply from being humans, but our rights are something that people decide they can give us, that also means our rights are something that people can decide they aren't going to give it to us. And in those situations, that's when we see incredible totalitarian dictatorship oppressions. Now, I want to just take a moment and ask you to maybe think through some of the arguments for abortion that you've heard and think how this would then apply to that. And so what's an argument you've heard for abortion or against a, a pro-life position? And so that, that's the scenario in which you're saying it's an unwanted child. Right? No one's going to care for it. And that doesn't necessarily fit fully. I think it does kind of flow out of this one, right? Because if there's an adult no one wants, we don't say, well, no one wants him. Let's just kill him. That, that the reason that makes sense on some level to some people is because, well, someone has to take care of it. And so what we're saying is it's dependent on someone else. But that then goes back to our argument of, well, that doesn't make a difference really, does it? Whether or not someone wants to take care of a human life isn't the value of that human life. It's another argument you've heard. Right, which is why, I mean, one of the, I think, most common ones is autism. You have a whole mass of pregnancies where the child is killed because the child is autistic. And again, I, I think that's really right here. So you're really saying on some level it's not developed at the point where we think it should be. But I don't think that's our call.
That somehow late-term abortions are worse. Right. Um, and I, I think, I mean, the only potential case you'd make is it could be more painful to the child. But the reality, too, is even with that, we keep moving earlier and earlier to when we think the unborn child feels pain, which means I don't think we really know. Um, but that would be the really only the situation. It's just as bad. It's just it's also painful. Um, but that that's right. I think that is a very inconsistent position. So let me then close with some thoughts on on what you can and, and should do. The first is I would just encourage you to be willing to speak up about this. In Proverbs 31, we, we see a call there specifically uh, to, to the king, but I, I think the principle is something we see in Scripture. Open your mouth for the mute the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the poor and needy. And I think as Christians, we should always want to see true biblical justice being done. I We'll get to this a little bit later. I don't necessarily think there's always clear political paths to what that looks like. But I think we should always want to, to speak out for those that we believe are, are not receiving justice, especially for those who cannot speak. And that's why I'm convinced that this is the greatest evil in our society because you think about the pure number of children that have been killed and their complete inability to do anything about it. I mean, there is no one who we could say would be as mute or as destitute or as poor or as needy as an unborn child, which heightens the evil of what's being done. Or Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. I think as well, one thing that would certainly be good for us to do would be to support adoption. Whether that means you yourself choosing to adopt or, or perhaps giving to others who are doing that or giving to organizations that are doing that uh, because I think it is true that once the child's born, someone is going to have to take care of it. And I think the best situation is to have parents. And that's the best situation for any child. And so that certainly should be what we would want to see happen for children. And so it's, it's good and right for us to support that. And again, I think there's a biblical uh, principle behind that. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And certainly as you look through church history, you, you see Christians doing this very thing. Christians would take the infants that had been laid at the gate to be exposed and left to die, and they would take them in and raise them. And, and one reason is simply because their life is valuable. Another is because that's one of the greatest opportunities they'll then have actually hear the gospel because they'll be brought up with believing parents and be able to go to church and to, to faithfully hear God's word proclaimed. And so I'd hope that we would consider supporting adoption. Then finally, and I think this really should be at the heart of, of everything we're seeking to do in this, especially as church leaders, would be to proclaim forgiveness. 
I hope that as I've gone through this, you've recognized I'm not, I've not given any kind of specific political actions that I think we should take to, to change this. I, I think as, as you're addressing this in, in Christian church kind of context, I think what we should be doing is we should be laying out the, the biblical parameters to think about this morally and to think about this ethically and to recognize this is an evil that we want to see stopped. But what's the best way to stop it? There are different arguments and different examples, and I don't think the scriptures necessarily would give us this is the political path for us to, to, to make this happen. And that's part of why I, I don't think that we as churches should necessarily be saying, all right, so we're all going to go down to the uh, pro-life rally here, or we're all going to hold signs along the road, or we're all going to preach out in front of this um, abortion clinic. We, we may... As individuals decide there's value in doing something like that, I don't think that as church leaders we should necessarily be saying, yes, this is what we should be doing, because that's not the role of the church. What's the role of the church? Well, the church is primarily to proclaim the gospel. So let's go back then to Ephesians. Ephesians 5. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fruitful works of the light are, are characterized by these things. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. So there's this positive, and then there's the opposite, the, the negative. And that's what we began to look at already in verse 11. So take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And here they're contrasted with the fruit of the light, that they're unfruitful works of darkness, which means these are not good, these are not right, these are not true. And part of what we're doing is to expose them. And as I said, I think that would include the way we live, but I think it would also include the things we say. For it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. That these are the kinds of things they hide. This is why scripture says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so one of our goals is to bring them to the light. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And this is a phrase that can seem very confusing. What exactly is being said here? Without getting all the ins and outs of it, I'm going to tell you what I think Paul's saying here. That when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. It's brought out and it's seen to be what it truly is. And when that happens, I think his point here, if I can say it this way, that allows for transformation to occur. That, that when the light shines, something can happen like what happened to you. You were at one time darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. And so when these things become clear, there's the opportunity for conviction of sin to take place. It's a possibility for things to be changed as we give, which means I think part of our exposing has to include the hope of the gospel. That it's not merely saying you're in darkness, it's saying you can come to the light. And that's really what our task is. The task that Jesus gives us is found in a few different places. One of them is Luke 24. And what he tells us there is it's written that Christ should suffer and the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Because yes, these, this is an evil act and we are to expose this evil act. But the people who are committing it are also people made in God's image. 
And what we need to tell them is stop sinning. Repent. And if you repent, you can find forgiveness. Because think about those 60 million abortions. Think about how many of those are women who now live in terrible, horrific regret and guilt. And one of the things that we have, that even a lot of people who are pro-life don't have, is this message. There's forgiveness. So let's be busy proclaiming this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the clarity it gives. We pray that we would think and believe things in light of what you have said. Lord, as we consider what happens each and every day in our country, we shudder and we are horrified. And yet we recognize that you have placed us here in part to be a testimony of the light. And so we ask that we would be involved in exposing this evil act and involved in proclaiming the glorious hope that is only found because Jesus Christ suffered and died and rose again. And so that now if we repent, we can be forgiven even of this evil. Lord, help us be faithful in proclaiming the truth. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.